talk with you following up on what we talked about last week. And, and really what I want to say to you by way of beginning is you're probably going to hear an entire message, one message that couples a number of these ideas brought together on a Sunday morning so that everybody gets to hear it. I'm sort of trying this out on you, sort of like uh, this get Mikey to take a bite first to see if it, if it uh, what works and what, what's good and what's not good. But I, I'm, I'm working on a message that I'm going to give to the entire church that I'm sort of working through here last Sunday night and tonight with you, some of the details last Sunday night and tonight with you. Now, you might think to yourself, why in the world would you do that, Pastor? Because you're talking about the importance of the church. You're talking about coming to church. You're talking about being involved in the church. We're here. It's like preaching to the choir. You heard that phrase before? It's like preaching to the choir. I mean, in other words, they're the, they're the folks that don't need what you're saying because that, I mean, they're here. They're already participating. They're already working. But that's really not the best way to look at it. I don't know if you have had to do this or not, but I've had to do this on occasion. I've had to take my car, and I've had to get the tires aligned. And if your tires are out of alignment, you know that can create a problem. It can wear your tires down more quickly. It hurts your gas mileage. cause your steering wheel to vibrate and shake. doesn't ride as smoothly as the car ought to ride. And so you take time. You go to a tire shop somewhere, and you pull it in. You pay the price, and they align your tires. And now that everything's moving in the same direction, everything's going the same way, and everything frees up. So what are you doing on Sunday night talking about the church and the importance of church, the importance of being in church? Why are you doing that? We're the choir. What are you preaching to us about? Because we're working on alignment. We're trying to get all the tires straightened up. Because here's what I know. If I don't get you on board with me, you don't understand why we do what we're doing, and you don't grasp the significance of what we're doing, then it becomes more difficult for me to communicate that to other people and convince them that they ought to come and be a part with us. But when you're on board and you're talking about and helping me to talk about the things that we're going to be talking about, then all of a sudden we get into alignment. We get into alignment, and we start moving in a better direction, and we start being a whole lot more efficient. We do this every year uh, with a staff meeting. Once a year, we have a staff meeting. We have more than that, but we have one staff meeting every year that's an alignment staff meeting. We talk about other things and new things, but for the most part, the entire staff meeting is about things that everybody already knows, things that we already do. But we go over them again. And why do we go over them again? Everybody heard it last year. Why go over it again? It's about alignment. We want to get the alignment right. Don't you take your car periodically and get the tires lined up? Well, periodically, we, as a staff, stop and we align ourselves. We make sure that we remember what it is we're here to do and where we're moving and how we're working together and and how this has got to play out. We're aligning ourselves. So what we're doing tonight, last night and tonight, last Sunday night and tonight, is we're aligning ourselves. I'm not preaching at you so much as is, is I'm t- telling you, let's, let's get in alignment, let's make sure we all understand the same things, and let's make sure that uh, we uh, recognize that we have come together. And if all of us, I mean, if we've got maybe a couple of hundred people here, if we had all of us saying the same thing, doing the same thing, emphasizing the same thing, uh, prioritizing the same thing, then we can spread that to others in the process. So what we're last Sunday night tonight, we're talking about alignment. That's what we're talking about in essence. Last, last week we talked about we need to do more in 24. Uh, in verse 25, 
He says, as you get closer to the day, the day that's approaching, that's the day when Jesus comes. As you get closer to the day, meaning that the days in which you live are going to get more evil and more wicked and more sinful. In the, as you see the day approaching, you don't want to do less and less. You want to do what? You want to do more and more. More importantly, uh, more important is the church. More important is your walk with God. More important is your Bible reading. More important is your prayer. You don't want to do less of that. You want to do more of that in 2024. And so we emphasize that. I think I went through that pretty extensively with you. We want to do more in 24. We want to do more in walking with God in, in 2024. But what I want to talk to you tonight a little bit about is about how important the church is. And I want you to see the church as the writer of Hebrews spoke about the church. And where I want to begin is in verse 26. And before we begin reading in verse 26, by the way, this is a Bible study, so we're going to do it a little bit differently than a sermon. You know, it might, might sound a little different. But we're going to do this as a Bible study because I want you to see what he's saying. And, you know, we, we talk about people that de-church and they deconvert. And what's the problem? Why is this happening? And what is the safety net? And what is the firewall to stop this from occurring? Well, Hebrews chapter 10 tells us exactly what it is. And we have to be convinced that this is exactly what it is. Let me remind you that he's writing to Jewish believers. Hear the word, Jewish believers. These are not unsaved men and women. These are saved men and women. These are men who, men and women who know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Look at uh, verse 19. See verse 19. Therefore, what's the next word? Brethren. He's not talking to unbelievers here. He's talking to believers. So when you read verses 26, 27, 28, and 29, on and down to verse 30 and, and 31, it ends at verse 31, he's not talking to the unbeliever. This is one of five warning passages that's given in the book of Hebrews. This is one of the five warning passages that's given in the book of Hebrews. He even includes himself, the author, the writer of this book, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he includes himself by using the plural pronoun we. And so he's not talking about unbelievers. He's not talking about the possibility of losing our salvation. He's not talking about people who don't have salvation. He's talking to people who are brethren. He's including himself in the admonition that he's given, uh, giving. He's, he's speaking to those of us who name the name of Christ as well as himself. And he's talking to these Jewish believers who are leaving the faith. He's talking to Jewish believers who, who are turning their back on Christ and they're going back into Judaism. They're under persecution. Life is not easy. Things are hard. When you, when you come out for Christ and you live out for Christ, it creates all kinds of problems in the first century. And, and these people are turning around and they're going back to their old way of living, going back to their Judaism, their Judaistic pra practices. And he writes this letter and says, don't do that. We have a greater uh, Savior. We have a greater uh, tabernacle. We have, everything is greater with Jesus. Don't go back. Go forward. So he's encouraging them. So part of the encouragement not to go back is to warn them. He gives five warnings. This is one of them. He gives warnings. Don't go back. To go back is dangerous. It'll, it's costly. It's, it's uh, going to be something unpleasant if you go back. So we pick it up in verse 26. Then we're coming back to 25. 
We're going to look at verse 26. So he says, for if we sin willfully. Notice the word willfully. He's talking about something that comes from Numbers 15. He's talking about presumptuous sins. Sins that are intentional. These are people who are intentionally with presumption turning around and walking away from Jesus. They are brethren, they are believers, but they're leaving the faith and they're walking away from Christ and back into Judaism because it's less problems, there's less difficulty, there's less persecution, there's less hatred. So let's go back to Judaism. So he says, for if we sin willfully, if we make this choice willfully, after we have received, after we have received the knowledge. That's the full knowledge of the truth. Not partial knowledge, not some knowledge. That's the experiential knowledge. After you've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You say, wow, what does he mean? Here's what he means. He means this is, this is deadly serious. To walk away from Jesus after you know the truth about Christ after you've been made known of that truth, made known of the truth, and you know the truth yourself personally, to walk away, you're walking away from the one who sacrificed himself for your sins. Verse 27, but a certain, here's what you have to look forward to when you become an apostate, when you backslide, when you walk away intentionally, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment. Now, we're always afraid of the word judgment, but we think that that's only on unbelievers. But he's talking here to believers. They called them brethren. He includes himself in the pronouns. If we sin willfully, what's going to happen is we're walking away from the sacrifice for our sins. We're walking into what will be certain judgment. We, we, we believe, you should believe, if you believe your Bible, that God chastens those that are his. Hebrews chapter 13 all that God loves, he chastens. If you don't receive chastisement, he says you're illegitimate, you're not his children. When you walk away from the sacrifice of Jesus, these believers walk away and go back into Judaism and you walk away from Christ having known the truth that's in Jesus, you, you should look forward to what's going to come, which is an expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. I mean, when you walk away from Jesus and you walk into or back into another way of living, you're in essence putting yourself into the same category of those that are the adversaries of Jesus. Are you with me so far? We're talking to believers. We're not talking to unbelievers. Even the writer himself includes himself. These are brethren. And if you walk away, you should expect the consequences. That's what he's saying. You should expect the consequences that are going to come to you because you walked away from what you know to be the truth. You put yourself with the adversaries. Now, what does Psalm 1-1 say? It says, we're not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful, right? What are you doing when you walk away from Jesus? You're going in sitting in the seat of the scornful. You're going to that place of being apart with the adversaries against Christ. Verse 28, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, it takes you back to the Old Testament. These are Jews. They would have understood all of this. They would have understood what the Old Testament required. You can't put somebody to death without two or three witnesses. 
You can't just show up one day and say, I think this man did something wrong. He deserves to die. Let's stone him to death. You couldn't do that. You had to have two or three witnesses to what was a, a violation of the law that was deserving of death. Now, he's saying, look, if, if that was what was required, death was what was required under the Mosaic law, and it took two or three witnesses uh, to authenticate that this person was worthy of that death, listen to what he says, verse 29, of how much worse punishment, chastisement, discipline, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Notice, he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the spirit of grace. I mean, if under the law you had to have two or three witnesses and somebody could be put to death, how much worse is it for you to walk away from the grace of God and the knowledge of the truth and to go back into Judaism and to turn your back on Christ? That isn't going to end well for you. It isn't going to mean you lose your eternal destiny with Christ. It isn't going to mean you lose your salvation, but it isn't going to end well for you. You're walking into the judgment of God. You're walking into his chastisement. You're going to be punished for doing so. By the way, I think that maybe that's true for a lot of people who've walked away from Jesus and walked away from his church, that some of the problems they're having and can't seem to overcome is the result of they've walked into the judgment of God. They've walked into a place where they're being disciplined by God. And when you turn your back on Jesus and you walk away from Jesus, you're trampling the Son of God underfoot, you're counting his blood uh, as, as something that's just a common thing, you're insulting the Spirit of grace. He goes on, verse 30, for we know him. Notice the pronoun. We, we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge. The, the, who, whose people are these? These are his people. The Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So all he is saying, verses 26 to 31, is this. You don't want to walk away from Jesus. You don't want to walk away from his sacrifice. You don't want to walk away from the cross. You don't want to walk away from the resurrection. You don't want to walk away from his church. You don't want to walk away from his word. You don't want to walk away from his people. You don't want to walk away from God. Because when you do so, you incline yourself to a position where the judgment of God, the discipline and the punishment of God is going to fall on you. And it might not look the same for everybody, but that punishment is a reality. If you walk away from God, you're walking into his judgment. You cannot lose your eternal salvation, but you're walking into his judgment. You say, what kind of judgment are we talking about? Well, it can be the loss of rewards. The loss of your testimony, certainly. It can be the loss of peace. It can be the loss of your life. It can be the loss of your family. Any number of things that can be a part of the judgment of God. When you walk away from God, it is a dangerous thing. I have uh, been talking with a man in his 40s that, uh, not, not here locally, but a man in his 40s that was a believer in Jesus and he had lived for Jesus. He was a part of the church, an active part of the church. Uh, not, not here, out of state an active part of the church, and 
He's now become what he says, an atheist. I no longer believe there even is a God. And we've been talking, talking about why he did that. What was the reason for that? And there were reasons, uh, not the reasons you're thinking. Do you know a lot of times people walk away from Jesus, walk away from the church, walk away from the things of God because they know they're not doing and living the way they should be living and the conviction bothers them. So the only thing they can do, if they're not going to get right with God, the only other thing they can do is to try to put God out of their minds altogether. As if somehow that's going to minimize the judgment that they're going to experience. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, look, people who walk away from Jesus, the result is going to be a negative result. It's going to be punishment. I mean, you can't walk on the blood of Jesus and count the grace of God as something that's common and just walk away from it, and God's going to just overlook it and say, no big deal. So there are people, even as far back as the first century, when the writer of Hebrews is penning this letter, all the way back, who were de-churching, and they're deconverting. And they're going back into the ways of the Judaistic practices. They're trying to make their lives easier. They're trying to get to a place where it's simpler. And I don't have the hardship of the persecution that's all around me. I just want to love everybody and I want everybody to love me. So I'm going to go back to what I know where people will love me and they'll quit putting pressure on me. And Paul, or excuse me, the right, I keep, I said that twice last week because it's yeah, Paul or Barnabas in my estimation. Uh, One of the reasons it might be Paul, uh, let me see if I can find it here. Chapter 10, um, look at verse 32. But recall the former days in which after you illuminated, in which you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with suffering, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated, for you had compassion on me in my chains. Hmm. Maybe it's Paul. That's why it keeps coming out. Sorry if I offend you by saying it. If you have a better solution than Barnabas or Paul, then you tell me what it is. Maybe you're right, and I'm wrong. I doubt it, but maybe you are. (laughs) The point is, if you walk away from Christ, you walk into his discipline. You walk into his punishment. he's, He's warning them, stop and think about what you're doing. And what is the stopgap measure? What is the firewall to prevent this from occurring? What is the safety net to rescue you before you fall away from Christ? The answer is in verse 25. The answer, the firewall, the safety net, the stopgap is the church itself. When you walk away from the church You put yourself in a position where you're a sitting duck for Satan to take you out and to put you in a position where you turn your back on Christ altogether and you walk thus thus into the judgment of God, into the punishment of God because you walked away. Don't do it, he says. 
Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Why? Because that's the stopgap. They're there to help you. They're there to encourage you. They're there to stir you up. They're there to lift you up. They're there to love you. They're there to help you stay on the path you ought to be in. You need the church. That's the point. If you walk away from the church, you become a sitting duck. For the one who is a lion, a roaring lion, looking for whom he can devour. Now you say, but pastor, uh, churches are a problem, aren't they? Well, there are churches that are a problem. Uh, I'm not talking about every church. There are some churches you need to get out of. I'm not sure, for instance, in the United Methodist Conference, uh, those that are staying... I'm not sure why they're staying, except they don't believe the Bible, they don't want to follow Jesus, and they're walking away from God. Why would you want to stay and affirm something? I am not Catholic, could not be Catholic. The salvation is not in the church, it's not in the sacraments, uh, it's not in the confessional booth. I don't have to go to God through a priest, I don't pray to Mary. But for the Pope to say he's going to bless same-sex unions, you can't bless something that God says is sin can't do that. So no matter what you think about the Catholic Church, you're walking away from the truth that you know ought to be upheld. You're walking away. And when you walk away from the truth and you walk away from Jesus and you walk away from his church, you're walking into judgment. If you're saved, you don't lose your salvation, but you're walking into his punishment that none of us wants to experience. And the church is the safety net. It's the firewall. It's the stopgap. It's where you come to be able to work out things in life so that we can help each other and we can, learn to, uh, we can learn to grow together in love and grow together in maturity and grow together in walking with God, doing more in 24. It's where we got to come. And yeah, there's some churches that you ought to get out of, but I'm not talking about those churches. I'm talking about churches like ours. Churches that are at least trying to preach the Word. Maybe not as good as some people can do it, but we're trying to preach and teach the Word of God and hold the Scriptures high and honor and worship Jesus and make sure that we're teaching the truth and not just our own opinions and own ideas and not drifting with the culture, drifting with the culture. And I fear some of the more modern churches, I don't mean we have to be old-fashioned, that modern churches that have done away with the preaching of the word, we talk about the Bible, but we don't talk the Bible. We talk about the Bible, the Bible becomes a, a, uh, a, uh, a catapult to what we want to say, but it's not what we're saying. Church ought to be a place where the word of God is honored and the word of God is taught soundly, where people are learning the truth. You don't need less of that, you need more of that. You need more of that because the more of that you have, the more of the stirring up that you have, the more of the encouraging that you have, the less likely it is you're going to turn your back and you walk away. And you watch it. I've watched it for 41 years. First, people, first, first step of, uh, first step of uh, apostasy in people's lives is they start neglecting the church. Before they 
are very far down the road. They're no longer coming to church, or they're coming to church not regularly, but periodically, and then it's not periodically, it's rarely, and then it's not at all, and then they become apostate to the faith altogether, and now they're writing books of how they're de-churching and how they're de-converting. It all started when they got away from the church. The church is the incubator. It is the place for you to come and be fed spiritually, for you to be corrected, for you to be comforted, for you to be loved, for you to be instructed. It's the place for you to come where we help each other. That is the stopgap measure. So for everybody who says the problem is the church, stop it. Stop ragging on the church. You realize the more you criticize the church, I'm talking about good Bible-believing churches. Not all of them are Baptist. Good Bible-believing churches, the more you rag on the church, you're criticizing Christ's bride. We ought to be loving his church. We ought to be honoring his church. We ought to be talking. Don't go home and have roast preacher on Sunday. None of you are going to do this. I'm preaching to the choir again. We're, on, we're in alignment. You already know all this stuff. But I want to make sure all the tires are pointed in the same direction. They're not tilted one way or the other. There's no, there's no vibration in the steering wheel. We're all working together on the same page. This is important. The church is central. It's important. It's not something you take or leave. It's not something that you don't think about until you have to think about it. It's something that's central to our lives. Notice what he says here. Verse 25 again. Are are you all with me? I got uh, 15 minutes left. So it's not going to get done tonight either. Not forsaking the assembling. See the word assembling? Actually, the word assembling together, that comes from the same word, assembling together. It's the Greek word episunagoge. Episunagoge. You you can hear the word synagogue there, can't you? Sunagoge, sunagoge. Epi means to. Uh, It means at. It's an unusual word to speak of the gathering of the church. Most of the time we use the word ekklesia, a calling out of people for a gathering of the believers. But it's believed that the reason why the writer of Hebrews used this particular word at this point in, in the letter is because that word ecclesia had come to represent the larger body, that invisible body called the church, and he didn't want it to be confused. He's not talking about, well, I go to church because I'm a part of the church. He wanted to say to them, it is about the local assembly, the gathering at a particular place that you should not forsake. Episynagoge. That's what the word means. The the prefix epi means to, to gather to, such that he's referring to Christ himself as the one to whom the assembly was attached. We're gathering together at a place, a location to meet with Jesus, to meet with Christ. Oh, please, please. So I just want to go be the church. What? Going to go be the church. That's the most unbiblical theology. It's not the most unbiblical theology I know, but it is an unbiblical theology. Going to go be the church. First of all, ecclesia means a called out assembling This means an assembling of people to Jesus. And the word epi not only means to, but it means at. 
at a particular place. You're being called out to Jesus so that when you forsake the assembling of, of a local assembly, a local body of believer, believers, in essence what you are doing is you're walking away from Christ and you're walking away from your responsibility to his church. Wow. It's the believers in Christ that are supposed to be assembling. Can I just deal with something else? You can't go be the church, by the way. You can go be a missionary, but the only way you can be the church is when we're together. It's the gathering of believers. You're called out to gather together. That's when you can be the church, and then you get sent out to be missionaries. Do you see the difference? What do you mean, go be the church? Can I be the whole body of Christ wherever I am? No way. We are the church when we come together and all the members of the body are gathered together. Episynagogay. We're gathering to and we're gathering at a particular place and we're all coming. Notice the word. Please notice in verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling together. That's the episynagogay. Not forsaking the assembling together of ourselves. And so let me just deal with a second thing. The first and foremost purpose of the gathering of believers in Jesus Christ is for the gathering of believers in Jesus Christ. So let me just align here for a minute. Let's let's make some alignment. Do we want unbelievers to come amongst us? Absolutely. There were four this morning that received Jesus Christ as Savior. If they're not here to hear the gospel, they may not be saved because if they don't hear the gospel, you can't be saved without the gospel. So we're glad when unbelievers are here. We want them in our midst. We want them amongst us. 1 Corinthians 14 talks about the unbeliever coming in and seeing the confusion. If he comes in and sees the confusion, he isn't going to be drawn to Christ. So there are going to be unbelievers who come into the church. We're thankful. We want to invite unbelievers. Use me as your means of presenting the gospel. Come hear my pastor. He's going to present the gospel. Let me do the presenting if that's what needed to be done. Let me do it for you, and then you follow it up. But the gathering of the church is not first and foremost for the lost. It is first and foremost for the believers, ourselves. Don't forsake the assembling together of ourselves. Because what happens if you forsake the assembling together of ourselves? The result is you put yourself in a position to be picked off by Satan, to become an apostate from the faith, to set yourself in a direction that will lead to your punishment and your judgment. Not eternal loss of your soul, but the loss of rewards, maybe the loss of life. Certainly the loss of joy. not forsaking the assembling of ourselves. You see the word, ourselves? Who, who is ourselves? He's writing to the brethren, verse 19, right? Right? He's using the plural pronoun, including himself in it. He's writing to the believers, these Jewish believers, and he says, wherever that church meets, when that church is meeting together, you don't want to miss the meeting of that church Because that's the stopgap. That is the firewall to keep you from walking away from Christ and de-churching and de-converting. That's the means by which God is doing his work. 
So you need to be there ourselves. We want unbelievers here. I want unbelievers here. We want the church to be here. We, are y'all with me? Amen every once in a while. We want the church to be here, all believers to be here, not forsaking the assembling together of ourselves, as is the manner. That word means the habit, the custom, what has become the manner and the custom of some. What's he doing? He's saying, look, if you don't want to have what happens in verses 26 to 31, then get in the church, get involved in the church, learn from the church, be a part of the church, grow through the work of the church. Don't let yourself get away from the church because you need them. And those who have developed a pattern of absences are putting themselves in a path that leads to apostasy. The ultimate possibility is total apostasy, at least partial apostasy, because you're not coming to Christ to meet with Christ and to meet with his body. You're not functioning within the body as Christ intended you to function. And he says when you do that, you're sinning willfully. You're sinning willfully. And you're putting yourself in a position to be taken out, to be punished. Please notice another word here. It's the word forsaking, not forsaking, the assembling together of ourselves like some have become accustomed to doing. Don't forsake. He's not talking about the casual absence. He's not talking about the absence from being ill or some kind of providential hindrance. The word literally means to leave in a lurch or to leave behind. It means to desert or to leave someone in a state of destitution. It means to separate from or to abandon. Think about these words, this word forsake. It's the word that Jesus used when he was hanging on the cross. Matthew, how serious is this? Forsaking is more than the casual absence. This is the consistent pattern of a life. He says forsake is the word. That's the word that was used by Jesus hanging on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hey, this is no little deal. This is a big deal. It's the same word that the Apostle Paul used. Uh, let me find my note here. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 10 and 16. In 2 Timothy, Paul's in prison. He's about to lose his head. He's going, to be, he's going to be martyred from the faith. He's only hours, days or hours away from sacrifice, being sacrificed as a martyr from the faith. And he says, there was no one who stood with me. They all, here it is, forsook me. And then he mentions one particular. He mentions a man by the name of Demas. Demas has forsaken me. This is a willful act. This is a willful choice. This isn't somebody who's sick and can't come to church. This isn't somebody who, you know, they have a commitment that they have to keep with their family. This isn't a matter of going on a vacation periodically. This is somebody who sets themselves up in a pattern of habitually forsaking the church. This is a serious matter. This is no little deal. As believers are gathering together, the people of God are supposed to be gathering with them. And why would it be that some would become habitual in their absences? Why would it be 
that some would set themselves up to march themselves right into the face of the judgment and the punishment of God for walking away from their, their, their loyalty to Jesus Christ. Why would they do that? Why would they do that? Well, just, just look with me. Yeah, chapter 2. Yeah, come on, we've got to go quick. I'm almost done here. I've got four minutes left. I've got 20 minutes of, method, of material. Here we go. Chapter 2. He's talking to believers Therefore, we must, verse 1, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. You've got to listen to what you've been taught, lest we, here it comes, do what? Drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how? He's not talking to unbelievers. We often quote this verse. I've heard sermons preached on this verse to unbelievers about neglecting so great a salvation. If you neglect so great a salvation, you'll be turned into hell. And that's true. That's not what he's talking about. How shall we escape if we who are believers neglect so great a salvation? How is it that we could forsake the church? How is it that we could put ourselves in a pathway that's headed toward the judgment of God? How is it that we could become habitually absent? Well, the word's neglect. We just neglect it. We just, we just neglect it. Look, look at chapter 3. Uh, chapter 3, verse 12. You find another word. Chapter 3, verse 12. Uh, verse 12, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in, here it comes, departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily, which is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. How do we, how do we uh, find ourselves turning our back on the church, thus turning our back on Christ, turning our back on our responsibility, walking directly into the judgment of God. How is it that we could ever make such a habit in our lives that we forsake the church? We get hardened by sin. We don't just neglect things, things that are important, things that are necessary, things that are needed in our spiritual lives. We just get hardened by sin. Uh, do you watch things that you used to think were... <gasps> Things that you would never watch while your children were sitting there with you, and now you think nothing of watching it? We get hardened to it. Well, it's everywhere. You get hardened to it. Look at chapter 5, verse 11. Chapter 5, verse 11. He goes on. He's trying to keep them from forsaking the assembly because that's the firewall, that's the safety net, that's the, that's the, that's the stopgap measure to keep people from marching right into the judgment of God. Verse 11, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. That didn't mean they needed hearing aids. Didn't mean they needed hearing aids. It means that they're listening to other things or the wrong things altogether or they're not listening at all. They're dull of hearing. Now, if you're taking medication and you come to church and you're on medication or you've had to work all night the night before or you've had a long night because you're up and down. I have nights like that. Get up three or four or five times a night wondering, why can't I sleep through the night? I have a friend who says it's a guilty conscience. You've got a guilty conscience. He's kidding me, of course. It's not a guilty conscience, just I can't sleep sometimes. You get up, come to church, and, oh, 
Will the preacher ever finish? Will he ever finish? Will he? My eyes are drooping. You get the only toothpicks, you know, put them in there, prop your eyelids open. I get it. I, I've been there before. Sometimes my sermons are not good, and you just go to sleep. We're not talking about any of those things. We're talking about people who've just turned off. You know, wives that have husbands that have hearing aids, they just turned them off. They're dull of hearing. Or, or look over, if you will, chapter 6, verse 12. Look what else can happen. You can neglect, you can be hardened, you can become dull in your hearing. Verse 12. That you do not, I wish I had time to read this whole section here, but that you do not become, uh oh, sluggish. But imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Don't become sluggish. You, you know what sluggish means? Can I give you another word for it? It can also be translated as the word slothful just can't get up on Sunday morning, preacher. <laughs> I just can't get up on Sunday morning. <laughs> and then come back on Sunday night, the football game's hardly off. I haven't had supper yet. <laughs> I just, I can't do that. It's just too hard. It's cold. It's cold. Then it's get hot and it's hot. <laughs> Slothful. Whether it's neglect or it's being hardened or it's dullness or it's sluggishness, we make a willful choice that we're going to neglect the church, we're going to forsake the church. It becomes a habit in our lives, a process that goes on constantly in our lives. And the end result is we find ourselves drifting from the Lord, drifting from the things of God, drifting toward the disaster that lay ahead. Because before long, we'll become an apostate. Maybe we won't be an apostate in the way we talk or the things we say we believe, but we'll be an apostate in respect to the way God has functioned and is functioning in this world through his church because we've walked away from it. You don't need less church. You need more church. I'm not talking about the number of services. I'm talking about you don't need less of us. You need more of us. You don't need less teaching, you need more teaching. You don't need less praying, you need more praying. You don't need less life groups, you need more life groups. We don't need less fellowship, we need more fellowship. Why? Because the church, a church that's doing what a church is supposed to do is a place that is a stopgap, it's a safety net, it's the firewall to keep people from falling away. And how do we do that? I don't have time to tell you. Just look at it, chapter 10, one more time, real quickly, real quickly. Chapter 10. This is worth staying here for an extra minute or two. He comes down in verse 19. He says, therefore, that's an important word, what goes before it, which we had time to look at it. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. First of all, what's he saying? You have, you have boldness to go directly to God and talk to God. We have confidence to approach God. By the way, verse 19 to verse 25 in the Greek text is one sentence. It's one long sentence, broken up so that we can understand it in the English language. 
He says, look, you have this incredible opportunity to go directly to God. You don't have to go through the preacher. You don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to go through one of the saints. You can go directly to God. You can have boldness right into the very throne room of the Almighty. Therefore, because you have that kind of confidence, then he goes on, verse 21, and having a high priest over the house of God, he, we not only have confidence to approach God, we have a sympathetic high priest. We have a superior high priest. Because you have those two things, boldness to enter in and a superior high priest, he says three things. Number one, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart. Let us draw near. That's number one. Number two, let us hold fast the confession. Let us hold fast. That's number two. And number three, and let us consider one another in order to stir up. That's the third thing. So what does the church do? We stir people up. You say, yeah, preacher, you're doing it really good. Yeah, you're doing that really good. We stir people up. To stir up means to sharpen, to sharpen beside, to stimulate, to incite. It's the idea of Proverbs where it says iron sharpens iron. We stir them up. You come to church you don't, you don't come to church to be entertained. You come to church to be stirred up. And it's not just by the preaching, it's by the people. You come to be stirred up, but it's not just stirring them up. You stir them up with love and good works. That's what you're stirring them up to, love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. But here's the second thing, exhorting one another. And just so you know, whenever you see the word exhorting without a qualifier, he's not saying exhort to love or exhort to peace or exhort to comfort. When he's using the word exhort without a qualifier, it encompasses a full range from rebuking to warning to encouraging to comforting. Rebuking, warning, encouraging, and comforting. He says when you come to church, the stopgap, the firewall, the safety net that will keep you from turning your back, you don't neglect it. Don't neglect, don't, don't willfully Harden your heart, neglect it, get slothful, get dull of hearing so that you start walking away from the truth. Don't do that because you're walking toward the judgment of God, the punishment, the chastisement of the Almighty. You need the church because we're here to stir you up. We're here to encourage you. Keep walking with Jesus. More in 24. Keep Walking with Jesus more in 24. So when your kids say, and I'm preaching to the choir because probably most of your kids are grown and gone. So when your kids say, I just, I just don't want to go to church this morning. It doesn't matter. This is what we do. This is who we are. This is why we do it. And everyone who says, well, it's the church that turned me away from Christ, that's a lie. That's a lie from the pit of hell. It's an excuse to live in that forsaken apostate condition. What are we going to do about it? We're going to love those folks. We're going to pray for them. We're going to seek to lead them back to the things of Jesus. But it's serious business, mister, ma'am. It's serious business when you turn your back willfully 
and you walk away from the things that you know are true, you walk away from them and you begin denying them and you become an apostate to them, that, that's, that's, that's not going to turn out pretty. We need the church.